ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Devin Anderson of Convexitas. Devin discusses Convexitas's approach to risk mitigation. We have a lot of discussions about options. If you are thinking of learning and trading options, I would highly recommend listening and ruminating to on the things that, that Devin says. I think anyone that is considering trading options should seriously consider why they are on the other side of Devin and his firm. I would surmise that over the long term, you're most likely just giving them money. But perhaps not. Anyway, this episode is obviously not a stock episode. I think it's a great one. I hope you all enjoy it. And I hope that Devin comes back on the pod sometime. This episode is sponsored by stratosphere.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E.io. Yesterday, I was playing around on Stratosphere and came across Prem Watts's portfolio, realized that 48% is in Atco and 16% is in Resolute Forest Products. Both of those are pending mergers, and Prem is about to get a lot of cash. And, you know, that's the type of stuff that, that happens. I was looking for a commodity producer, and Prem came across the screen because it's kind of natural to scroll through who owns certain companies and who the super investors are. I actually think I got to Prem because I clicked on the super investors tab and you can basically scroll through all your favorite people. We got Polling Capital, we got John Paulson, we got Dan Loeb, Carl Icahn. I mean, all, all of them are on Stratosphere in this tab. And Rain Conoff, Wyden's on there. Look, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think it's fantastic prosumer solution. If I were looking for a data provider for financials and didn't want to spend a lot of money, and by the way, Stratosphere is free. That's F-R-E-E, free. I'd say, hey, I'm going to check out Stratosphere because it's a very slick product. And, you know, they've got premium products. If you want more financials or you want the KPIs, yes, you have to pay for that. I think that's a fair ask. Should you want to do that, use the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W, for 15% off. Tell my man Braden and his team that, that I sent you. I would appreciate it. I know he'd appreciate it. And uh, I, I think, you know, this is something I'm happy to put in your ear. So again, that's stratosphere.io, S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E.io. As always, none of this is investment advice. All of this is for entertainment and informational purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. All right, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by Devin Anderson of Convexitas. Devin, thank you. You've come down to sunny Florida and we're doing this in person, which is nice. Yeah, it's great to be here both to do this with you, but also to not be in the Northeast for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I actually, I was just down with some friends that were from the Northeast and they were all happy to be here, but I gather it's not that bad there right now. Yeah, global warming is kind of working out this summer. Well, the long-term prognosis on that is not so clear, but yeah, for th- this summer, 50 degrees in January ain't so bad. Or the winter, yeah. I think it's funny because people ask me, like, what are you going to do if Florida, you know, with global warming, is Florida going to be underwater? And it's like, won't Manhattan be too? 
I think there's models that say that everything up to like Houston could potentially be underwater. Yeah. Maybe not in my lifetime, but not that long after. Maybe the short beta trade is actually to buy like a bunch of land in Mississippi or even further in that will be beachfront eventually. Let's hope not Mississippi, but yeah. <laughs> no offense to Mississippi. Actually, yes, offense to Mississippi. Who cares about Mississippi? Anyway, you want to tell people what you do, how you got started, and then we'll get into the conversation a little bit. You are a referral from Jason Buck, who is somewhat of a gatekeeper for me. So I'm glad that he put us in touch. Yeah, we love Jason. He's a great client. And also he's he's a great mind and a great thinker. He's helped me in many unexpected ways think through the particularly the marketing of our business. Yeah, him creating the business that he's created is pretty impressive. I need him to come on and talk about like how he dreamt that up and manifested it. He's encouraged us to rethink particularly the social media aspect of our marketing and outreach and that to quote him, we can't act like two old boomers anymore. No, which which fair. my partner Zed and I sometimes can be. So we've opened our minds and we're gonna we're trying to up our our LinkedIn game and make people more accessible. But anyway, just to introduce myself, my name is Devin Anderson. I'm a co-founder along with Zed Francis of Convexitas, which is a investment manager, a boutique investment manager specializing in option strategies and particularly long volatility strategies. But uh, before that, I spent 15 years at Deutsche Bank in the sales and trading business with a variety of roles ranging from being a flow salesperson to the head of structuring and, and the structured businesses inside of equities. I did a stint in the bad bank, unwinding all that stuff for 18 months. And then prior to that, I had a, a career in technology. I helped start a couple internet service providers. I worked at the search engine Lycos for a while, kind of in the pre-Google era. Also helped start a data center business that was related to that before I went to business school. So uh, I'm kind of on my, my second big industry, which kind of is only relevant because much of what we do at Convexitas is a combination of technology and investment management to enable the right things in the investment management world. But I think that's probably something we're going to get into. It definitely is. I got to ask you for some defined terms. What is a flow salesperson? Okay. So if you're an institution and you need to block trade a, a bunch of derivatives, right? So for example, let's say you're a hedged equity mutual fund and you need to trade 100,000 options. You can call up and get a price for that block of options from a dealing desk where they commit capital, take the other side, and then hedge the risks so that you can be done with your trade. That's a flow desk, and I was a salesperson on one of those for almost a decade. How long are they then holding the risk before they're offlaying it? Completely depends. In a really vanilla case, you can call up other market makers and hedge funds that react to the other sides of trades and are willing to take risk for essentially just the bid offer. So on any, you know, if you had 100,000 options, maybe you directly lay 40,000 of them off. So, so just instantly when the print goes to the tape, you're only facilitating 60. And then of those 60, you're going to do a variety of trades to take out the different risks, the risk with respect to spot, the risk with respect to volatility. And, you know, you may trade other options against that. You may just trade the underlying against that and decide that you're just going to wear or keep the option risks. And then slowly over time, you work out of it. But in these cases, particularly given what's the amount of liquidity that's available from independent market makers. It's not as if no one's going to call you up and pay commissions for things that they can just go trade electronically by themselves easily. By definition, you're getting shown flow and orders that are a little bit more difficult. Otherwise, 
the people calling you would just go trade it themselves, right? So you're wearing it for days to weeks in most cases. And then the hedge funds that are on the other side of that trade are buying at a discount because somebody's looking for liquidity in a product that's not normally liquid, yeah? Or they're just getting a couple cent head start on something they wanted anyway. Yeah. So do you know what they're looking for? And then you like have a list and then you're- Yeah, the good, the the good salespeople understand what their clients are. And then when you have an order on the desk that the other side is going to look attractive to them, you're on the phone with them instantly. Yeah. So that's, that was a big part of the role on, on a flow desk. That makes sense. I, that would be a fun job. I always used to ask the swap lady at BMO. I was like, who are you selling all this stuff to? And I don't know. She was always probably like, why is this junior analyst asking me all these weird questions about counterparty risk? And <laughs> I did a bunch of synthetic equity stuff as well. That world's a little different in that there's no convex option risk to, on that desk, right? So the risk profile is much different, but you have very significant financing risk, right? Like, and the amount of balance sheet that you're using from the bank versus what you have to go out and borrow or potentially you can generate borrow, you know, so that's all essentially financing rather than actually taking market risk like we had in the options desk. So kind of a completely different hat you have to put on in that world, but, but nonetheless, very interesting. The actual innards of how the bank finances itself kind of both at the treasury level and then at the trading desk level are actually kind of a, a fascinating thing, but not something I'm going to, we want to make your listeners ears bleed with probably. Well, probably not, but I have to think it's a good training ground for what you're doing now because I mean, you got to be risk focused, right? If you're dealing with that many options contracts, I'd imagine there are risk parameters as to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Different people take different tactics on this. Like we are a very risk forward firm. When we run a mandate for someone, we're very focused on what the risks are at any one point in time. And that's a much different perspective than a lot of the the way that product comes to market, which is they're going to take some amount of whatever is in your portfolio, and then they're going to trade options basically on a treadmill, right? So what they're doing there is they're really managing the time to expiry rather than managing the risk at any one point in time. So let me give you a great example. When I speak to advisors that use like buffered products, okay, so like ETFs, right? They're well aware that they're putting clients into a structure that has some underlying exposure to the market. And they're aware that that exposure is capped both on the upside and the downside, right? So some like sales guy came into their office and and drew a couple hockey sticks on a whiteboard and said, it can go up this much and it can go down this much. And that's what's in the CTF. And they go, okay, great. It's risk controlled. I'm going to put some allocation in that. But the actual risk of that product at any one point in time, the advisor is very rarely aware of it. So as spot kind of approaches one of those levels. So this is an ETF of options is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so these okay. buffered products like the hedged equity mutual funds or hedged equity ETFs all kind of operate in a similar way. But as spot gets closer to either the puts that they're long or the calls that they're short, yeah, the, the exposure's changing, right? And potentially you have anywhere from if you bought $100 of this thing, you have $100 of market exposure, or maybe you have $10 of market exposure, right? And we don't really encounter people that are aware of that, right? They think of risk in this kind of very linear way. Well, I bought $100 of this thing. But the actual risk in the ETF, they don't know. And what determines it is actually going to be however the market moves as that approaches the options expiries that it has, because it's just buying these options on a treadmill and resetting, right? That's a much different approach than we take, which is we're going to come in and trade a strategy that's in your account. And we're going to provide very clear targets 
to that we intend to capture so much of the downside in exchange for creating so much drag. So we're actually managing to the risk at the time rather than managing whatever, you know, kind of this managing a treadmill to expiry. And it's a much different point of view that we're after an outcome where we are monitoring every day what the risk levels are inside of the commitments that we've made in that particular investment mandate versus we're going to essentially put this thing on an elevator and let it run for you. And the advantage is that as you go through time, you know, when we do it our way, you don't really have time sensitivity, right? So we could go back in time and look at the performance of certain hedged equity products in any space. And in some cases, they get very lucky because an event occurs very close to expiration and they essentially capture or, or are protected from a big drawdown. And then other times they aren't lucky, right? And what's determining that is not the manager's skill, but rather wherever that event fell in the cycle of that product's option role, yeah. right? And in our view, that's not, you know, like it's fine if you have a sufficiently long time horizon, I guess it doesn't matter, but it's not, it's not optimal if what you care about is making the most money, which would imply you should have something that's managing to the risk and then allowing you to take the proceeds of that strategy and go redeploy it elsewhere. That was probably a bunch of stuff to digest. No, it is. So I just want to, the underlying on a hedge equity product, you are what, long the equity selling calls or? So yeah, the, the most common form of this in the in the ETF and mutual fund space is, you know, they're long something that looks like the market, usually S&P, so they compare it with S&P options, but it doesn't have to be. And then there's some long put purchase element and then some short call element to help fund those long puts. Oh, interesting. Right? So it's usually, you know, what we call market beta plus caller. Yeah, right? yeah, I was just going to say you're pretty much collaring. Yeah, and then that rolls through time. So if you were doing this every quarter, in the COVID sell-off, it looks amazing because the event happened, the, it happened right near a roll, right? But if it would have happened in April instead of February and March, now all of a sudden the historical return profile looks a little different. It wasn't through any decision or skill of the manager. It was mostly due to time to expiry. This is our point. Like what you've got to manage to, and this is true kind of of all the products that we offer, we're managing to a risk level, not to a, a trading treadmill. Will that product, the hypothetical product that we're talking about, will that let the options expire and then buy new options? Or does it tend to have like a role like 35 days? Yeah, I mean, I, there's all, I guess they all change, there's all right? sorts of variants. I mean, most commonly, they're buying things, letting them expire and then replacing. Most commonly. So to your point, if you're pretty close to expiry and stuff sells off like crazy, your puts. Yeah, you look a like a hero. Of, yeah, interesting. Right? But what really happened there wasn't any decision that the manager made. It was just that the event happened on the roll date or close to the roll date. If it would have happened the following week, your sensitivity to that event would have been completely different. And I don't think that that's a particularly well understood aspect. And then you got to ask yourself, well, why, why are these products like this, right? And I, I think- yeah, like what's the underlying demand? Who wants to buy these products? Well, people want to buy equities with less risk, okay? Yeah. For sure. It seems like they should probably just have a lower allocation. But. Yeah, well, so this is actually, this is a fine question and a debate worth having. Should I just take my risk down or should I do something to manage my risk? This is a, I think a fantastic question. And the answer is that for, depending on who we're talking about, it can be either. So- the advantage for the sophisticated, oh, particularly sophisticated with a low tax basis, is 
with running risk mitigating strategies that you don't necessarily have to disturb the tax basis that you have in your existing portfolio. So if you're like, look, I'm starting to get uncomfortable, I'm going to take the risk down. Well, if you have a sufficiently low tax basis in the assets you own in a taxable account, you're paying taxes. Like you're going to have realized gains when you de-risk, right? And that may not necessarily fit in to your program. Versus in the risk mitigating world, if we can add a sufficiently convex exposure that's negatively correlated to the other assets that you own, it may allow you to run more risk for longer such that you don't have to go and make portfolio decisions. And additionally, when you do have the event, the risk mitigating strategy should be, should be throwing off liquidity, should be throwing off cash so that you can take that cash and go do something with it, yeah. right? So in our estimation, about two thirds of the value of any risk mitigating strategy over the long term really comes from reinvestment activity, not from the direct proceeds of the risk mitigating strategy. So as so, you know, what I'm suggesting is the actual thing that we do day to day is very important and it has to work. But maybe twice as much value over the long term comes from taking what we do and then going and, and buying more stuff. Yeah. Right? Because at the end of the day, the game is to accumulate productive assets. So if what we can do is provide you with a bit of a safety net, this convex safety net from the option world. And then when the event does happen, provide you some liquidity so you can go buy more stuff. That's a pretty powerful thing over the long run. So long as you believe that equity assets go up in the long run, which whether that's a realistic explanation and whether or not the American economy will continue to innovate and grow, like that's kind of a separate question, but I'm not going to sign up for the negative side of that one for sure. People figure things out. The base rates would be against you. It would be a heck of a call. And to those that do it, maybe they'll be the rich man in a poor scenario, but the rates are not with you. Okay. So just taking a step back so that the listeners don't get lost. The reason that we originally got connected was I told Jason that I had a few concentrated positions and I was concerned about some downside risk. And he said, the guys at Convexitas are who you should talk to because they'll do like some bespoke solutions. And also this is what they do. So just if anybody is wondering. There's a couple different corners of the, what I would call the risk mitigating space. There are many, many people in the market that do concentrated stock management. And we do kind of concentrated position risk management stuff. We do too. There's so many players out there though, that unless it's a situation where we really feel like we can add some alpha, we're probably not actually the first call on on that particular thing. Although we've we've had some very, very successful concentrated stock management programs for people because it's been a name where we thought we could actually get some edge trading the options. But like if you come to us with your your Microsoft, like, you know, you're you're an ex-executive of a big, very, you know, ultra large cap name and you've got a position that's big for you. I'm not sure that's something we can help with, but a four-letter name on NASDAQ, yeah, maybe we can do something with that. Our primary business, though, is not really doing customization. It's running a product with discretion really, really well, and then deploying that over many, many clients and accounts over many custodial platforms using the technology that we've developed. So when I speak about the risk mitigating strategies that we run, particularly with respect to the S&P, everyone's actually getting the exact same actively managed strategy. And we're essentially distributing it over many accounts with technology, which there's people doing SMA risk equity risk mitigation for a long time. But 
I'm not really aware of anybody doing it with this level of active management with kind of this level of return targeted goal because it requires trading infrastructure risk reconciliations and a lot of operational work that there really aren't tools out in the world for. We've had to go and write this stuff in order to be able to manage both the operation side of the house and the investment side of the house. So we're really aiming to deliver a discretionary, very high quality, high investment merit product across multiple people at scale, up to thousands and thousands of accounts, and to be able to do it in a very safe and operationally sound way with discretion in a lot of trading, which is different than I've got my treadmill and when they expire, I'm going to roll to the next thing, right? That's kind of a different set of operational tools than we have. How much discretion, I don't know if there's a number, but like how much is discretion versus like rules-based? So we have a saying that we like that maybe we need Jason's help figuring out the marketing message on, to be honest. Like we have a saying that we really like that has had mixed success with clients, which is we like to say risk over rules, which is to say we have risk-based limits for every single mandate that we monitor all throughout the day and every day. Every mandate, we agree on a size and we know what the risk limits are for whatever the product is. You know, we have a handful of different products and we know what those are and we manage within these risk bands, okay? That's a lot different than a rules-based approach, which says if the market does this or I'm going to do this, or if I get this close to expiry, I'm going to do X, right? So it's not a rules-based framework. It's a risk-based framework within which we exercise discretion. So it's actually in the risk mitigating space, we actually have a pretty wide band of what the market exposure can be. However, you know, it has to be negative. Like I can't be taking your account long. It can't be greater than the notional that you've hired us for because I'm not supposed to be taking a leverage short right? There's minimum amounts of convexity that we have to have at all time. There's shock scenarios that we monitor. So, you know, we're basically, there's a set of rules that says, I have to have this band of market exposure, and I have to have this minimum amount of shock and spot convexity. But kind of inside of those, it's up to us to figure out what the best way to implement that is, what part of the surface looks the most interesting, and what the relative value of it is, and how much of it we should have on at any one point in time. And that's a whole different way of thinking than, like I say, I have $100 of ETF, so I'm going to call her $100 and I'll see you in three months when it's time to roll it. And I want to be clear, I don't mean to cast the entire hedged equity space with that simplistic approach. Yeah, there no. certainly are more sophisticated things than that, but it's still kind of wildly different from a pure risk-based uh, approach that we're taking. Yeah, I didn't think you were, for what it's worth. I thought you I have, were I have friends that manage some of these products. I, I don't mean to offend them. <laughs> well... You feel like you found a better mousetrap, so you're allowed to say that. So we sat down in Miami, and we start talking, and you said to me, if anybody is telling you an option strategy that is not based on like the behavioral structure of the options market, you should stop listening to them immediately. Yeah. So do you want to go into a little bit of that? Because I think that your identification of those behavioral biases that are sort of like fundamental to the market, that's the way that you've expressed your product. Is that a fair characterization? You've got it right on the head. So when I was on the flow desk, actually, I can say his name, a buddy of mine, Josh Siegel, who, who currently has his own, his own fund. I'm not sure if it's open to outside investors, but uh, Josh very succinctly said to me one day, we were out having dinner and he said very succinctly, look, all good option trading has to start from biases in the market or it's not good option trading. And he's dead on. 
just dead right. And what that means is to make a, a value investing parallel, if you don't believe that you're starting with some edge in some stock, right? And you don't believe that there's some value, that there's a discount that you believe is there, then you know, why should you own this thing, right? Well, we can apply that same general framework to options trading. Think about it as one level up, right? So there's still the stock, right? Or the market or whatever the underlying equity is. That can have value in it, right? But then the options themselves have their own market and their own market microstructure and their own flows and their own biases. So it's not enough to say, well, I have a view on a stock, therefore I'm going to trade some options. If you're going to trade some options, you have to say, I have a view on the stock and there's this interesting thing in the options that makes trading the options worthwhile relative to just trading the stock, yeah. right? So in everything that we do, it starts from some bias in the option market, okay? And those biases, in options market, those biases don't take the shape of flows and imbalances that result from, usually from forced trading or from yield seeking or from bank rehedging. There's actually a bunch of sources of these, right? So in our case, we buy short dated options that we believe are inexpensive because there's an avalanche of people selling them and that ranges from private banks to other managers that look like us to even big institutions, right? So there's the depression in a certain part of the short dated volatility surface, particularly the S&P, that we think offers very good value, right? And that's solely because there are these yield generating programs out there that are pushing the prices down, right? And then we can go out on the long end of the curve and you can find really good values there in certain conditions when the market sells off, because of the particular dynamics of the way structured products have to be rehedged. And so we have, there's certain flow that we look for after a market sell-off that tells us that that's happening and we go out and trade those options. But the point is, a good options trading program needs to start from value in the options themselves, not a statement about the underlying. And then ultimately, you have to be able to make a statement about the options and a statement about the underlying together. And now, and now we have the shape of a product. I see particularly in the private bank world. So one of my duties when I was on the structuring desk and I ran the solution sales group at Deutsche Bank was I was the interface between global market equities and, and our private bank, right? So I've, I spent a bunch of time kind of inside a private bank and now talking to clients, you know, who use private bankers. And inevitably there's a, like a private bank quote options expert, right? And he's like, I have my strategy and it works on all underlyings because I'm going to come in and trade my caller, whatever it is, right? But really what he's saying is I'm trading options for their payout at expiry without a lot of regard to is there any relative value in the options themselves? Is there any value per my previous definition in the options themselves, right? Just because you can buy a put and reshape the terminal pay or the terminal distribution at that options expiry doesn't mean that that option's underpriced. Yeah, it could be overpriced. Right, and in fact, they often are, Yeah, right? I mean, that's like saying, like, if I buy hurricane insurance and a hurricane's four, four days out and the rates have already gone up, like, yeah, I guess I've mitigated my downside, but what did I pay to buy the insurance? Yeah, that's exactly right. So whenever you hear, just as a general rule, someone kind of giving you a pitch about derivatives that's based off its terminal payoff and they're drawing hockey sticks for you, yeah, like, your radar needs to go up. And then you need to ask the question, why these options? 
what is the mispricing or value in the derivative itself? What is special about the option pricing itself that makes doing this an options better than just a resized cash position? And that has to be the jumping off point for a good option strategy. So we have a joke like beware of hockey players. I like how you said that. What did you say? The options position has to be better than a resized, like, Yeah, than a, than a resized position in the underlying itself. Yeah, that makes total sense. Right. Otherwise, what are you doing with the options? Yeah, you should right. just sell. I mean, I guess you got tax consequences. To yeah, it, yeah, so, you know, so tax is important. And taxable account can kind of muddy these things. And sometimes you might say, look, these options aren't a great value, but my tax consequences would be worse. Fine, right? But if someone comes to you and is like, well, I, you know, you should get long whatever sector in the option space, they need to have a really good reason for why those sector options are mispriced. Yeah. I guess somebody that has like a strong view on the underlying might argue to you that the probability curve of the options, like that the options assigned to all the outcomes is too low. Therefore, yeah. you're basically like so so break even in down a, into delta, right? Right. At that point. If <laughs> people know. who make break even arguments so the only place that break-even arguments I've seen consistently work is in biotech where you have, or pharma, right? Where you have very specific events. And if you think you know something about the likely outcome of an event, right? And you can essentially look at the break-evens and say, I think that's a good value. I've seen that work there. But I got to tell you, on an institutional dealing desk over a decade, I met two people that could consistently trade options for direction without paying attention to biases and make money. And even then, I'm not convinced they were making that much money trading the options. It, the reality is there is a volatility risk premium. It is significant, right? And being long options is hard. That's why there, there's not a lot of people who run risk mitigating strategies. And overcoming the risk premium is difficult. So that's why actually, you know, since we're talking a little bit about product design and why the products that are out there are out there, a lot of the products out there are generating yield because selling options, right, that are covered or protected by a posting cash, right, it's kind of easy, right? It's like waiting for gravity to work. You sell the options, you collect the premium, and you talking and about you like put selling and stuff? Yeah, all of it. Covered call writing, put selling, the whole thing. Is your yield on capital that good in that strategy? It can be. Yeah. It can be. I mean, well, when interest rates are zero, I mean, yeah, everything looks good. Yeah. Now with bills at 4% plus, now there's some real alternatives actually, right? Yeah. I was actually just yesterday, I ran into a, to a friend here who owns a, he just started an advisor two years ago. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, because we want to buy bills for all of our clients. He's like, and no one knew what to do. <laughs> we haven't done this he's in like, years. He's like, he's like, there's a whole group of advisors and operations people that have just never had, yeah. never had to go buy bills in an yeah. account. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Here's the thing about short options. I mean, you didn't ask, but I'll, I'll say it. There's a place for short option strategies in your portfolio. Absolutely. Selling options. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. However, if at any time it's actually like really moving your P&L at the portfolio level, yeah, you've probably sold too, you're, it's probably too big. <laughs> like if you're changing your lifestyle because of your short option program, if you're like, wow, this is going much better than I expected. Those are some red flags yeah. to know that you've probably too big. And it's easy to get too big because it kind of grows over time when it's working out and people do more and more and more and then find themselves in trouble. I will say that there are some, you know, part of the reason that the bias for, you know, we buy short dated options as part of our core program. And that's because there's a bias from private bank sellers. Now, what the private banks do is pretty smart. 
Banks are good at shearing a sheep many times without killing the sheep, right? So it's in the private bank's interest to size these things appropriately, right? So private banks tend, with put selling programs in particular, tend to be very conservative in sizing those programs and not letting the clients get too big because they don't want the client blowing up, right? But if you can take 20,000 accounts and all of them are selling 5 or 10% of the total value of that account and puts in the S&P, none of them are really in that much jeopardy, but this is now a lot of flow, right? Which is why it's simultaneously persistent, right? Without being a lot of risk, particularly in the private bank world. Now, if rates go up enough, that dynamic can change. And then we're going to have to go look for value elsewhere. And they're selling puts, you're saying? So it, it comes in both forms. There's, there's a lot of put selling programs, a lot. But then there's also a lot of covered call programs as well, both at the index and the single stock level. Um, My null hypothesis would it would be higher on the call side than the put side, but I could be wrong. I think in the index world, there's more puts. And in the single stock world, it's definitely more calls. So there's a listener that goes back and forth on me and he tells me I buy puts. He's buying puts because he's worried about a crash. And I'm like, look, I'm just telling you, you better have a view on the actual price of the options. Otherwise, the options market makers thank you. But maybe he's right to focus on the short-dated stuff. I don't know. The problem is it's not enough to just buy short-dated options. You, you have to do some other things too. Well, this is what I tell them. But. <laughs> I mean, look, buying options on a treadmill to infinity kind of by definition has to be a loser because you're paying the volatility risk premium. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's my argument. Right. So, so if you've got to be selling something that offers a good value, right? And then the question is, what is that something and how do you manage the risk? And that's the secret sauce of what we do. Hmm. And the volatility risk premium, for those that don't know, can basically be thought of like as insurance that sort of like goes to zero all the time, right? Yes. And is that more or less a better way? Yeah. I've so heard if, it described as an ice cube that melts. It's essentially the extra little bit that someone who's short an option charges in order to be short that convexity, right? So if, if I could go hedge that option for $2, okay, it would cost me exactly $2 to go hedge it. I'm not going to charge $2 for it. I'm going to charge something more for it because my hedge is never going to be perfect. So I'm going to charge a premium beyond my expected hedging costs, right? My replacement value, if you've ever studied option pricing theory, in order to bear that model and short convexity risk. So and over time, that's why selling options works over time. Is you're, you're essentially collecting that, right? Well, the opposite must then be true of buying options, right? So in order to run risk mitigating program, you've got to find good value in buying options and you've got to find good value in selling options. And then you've got to size it and monitor the risk at a professional level. And, and that, that's why it's hard. And that, that's why we have a business. Yeah, it reminds me so much of insurance underwriting. Just because of how statistical and mathematical everything is. And if you're on the right side, you have true edge. But I do think, I just think a lot of people that, I mean, I'm certain a lot of people in retail have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And they're just donating money to the overall. Yeah, I mean, look, like look if, if you buy options long enough, it just has to be a loser. I mean, think about if if you know that you're paying more than fair value by definition, right? And you do it thousands and thousands of times, like the central limit theorem just has to take over right? It doesn't just has seem to, like a great strategy. Right. I mean, and the reality is if you do it like 30 times, it just, it, we're probably in central limit yeah. land, right? But so the reality is that trading options has got to be harder than doing the simple thing the private bank guy is suggesting most of the time. Yeah. 
Now, you like to tend to buy in the middle of the curve, like time-wise, right? Or am I well, wrong? Well, no, on it's that? all so the good value from the option sellers is kind of all short dated. Okay, you inside of six weeks. I'm sorry, I'm thinking you meant. Yeah, and then there are some interesting opportunities to offset the cost of those options in the middle part of the curve that comes from statutory purchases from banks and insurance companies and other people that kind of have to go out and cover the risk. That's part of why vol didn't expand a lot last year because the risk-taking institutional world is a lot different now than it used to be. I mean, when I grew up in markets, there were very healthy, long-dated volatility markets. Like you could go trade 10-year options and variant swaps and all kinds of exotica in the dealer world. You know, that stuff largely doesn't exist anymore because the balance sheet impacts and the risk impacts of that was just simply too great for the banks that were facilitating it. So it's forced, you know, kind of with less tools out there for the insurance world. It's forced them into trading plain vanilla options. And that shows up in the prices of the options. Huh. So it's not as if somebody has entered in to take up the bank. I mean, I'm sure some people have entered in to take up some of the bank market share, but the the bigger oh, consequences. That oh, yeah. The so, so there's private, you know, the risk has to go somewhere, yeah. right? And instead of when I was just starting off in the options trading world, a lot of that risk was warehoused by banks. Now it's warehoused by very sophisticated independent market makers. There are big businesses that have amazing tools and know exactly what they're doing, right? And in a way, maybe we're better off. That's a system with, it's actually, it's an unproven question, right? So what exactly is going to happen in a 1987 light crash yeah. with a bunch of independent market makers instead of a bunch of banks? We don't know yet because it hasn't happened, right? Now, the evidence is like when we've had a flash crash, things get very wide very quickly, right? And I think there's this, I don't want to call it romantic fantasy because it has the wrong, has the wrong connotation. It might be true. But I think there was this idea that you know, some cool-headed risk manager at the bank was going to be like there to provide liquidity in, in a crash like that. And that's not the case anymore. And, and that the citadels and virtues now are going to run for the hills and there won't be any liquidity. I don't know. I think those guys are pretty smart and there will continue to be a clearing price of things. It certainly won't be as tight as it is on a normal day or even multiples of that. But the reality is we don't really know. And the market structure has changed. So, it's an interesting question of whether we're better off with or without the banks taking a lot of risk that we're going to find out eventually. And then in the liquid market, this is another sidebar in Miami. Somebody kept asking what happens to the counterparty risk, but the exchanges require the posting of collateral all the time. Yeah. So we deal exclusively in, in exchange-listed derivatives, mostly because our clients, we run a, a separate account managed business, which is kind of another interesting question. But in order to get the maximum value out of these option strategies, particularly long option strategies, you've got to really deliver it in separate accounts. That's kind of a, a side point that we can come back to if you want. But as a result of that, we really have to trade listed options. And that obviates the counterparty credit risk question because you know all of our clients are essentially facing the exchange. The exchange is well capitalized by the people who own the exchanges. And the, the margin systems are layered kind of both at the custodian level and at the exchange level. And, and that's, that's a very robust system. Do you think all of these sort of developments within the options market, I mean, now I see daily options and there is a part of me that wants to dismiss it and be like, God, gambling is more prevalent than it ever has been. And that's a shame. And then there's the other part of me that as I've learned more, I'm like, actually, Maybe this is a more sophisticated way that finance is now conducted. 
like, you know, I mean, talking to Jim Carson got me thinking, you know, I follow Ben Eifert on Twitter, talking to you, like, I kind of wonder if this is a more sophisticated financial world we're living in. And if so, like, are these flows ever going to slow down? Or is the options? I mean, I know it can't grow to infinity, but like, it seems to be taking a lot of share of financial innovation and flow. The growth of the very, very short dated options. That seems kind is, of degenerate to me. Look, in every investing culture around the world, there's some pocket of thing that looks like this, okay? So in Asia for a long time, retail would not trade zero or one day to expiry options, but they sure would go buy very highly levered structured products, right? That was the method there, right? I mean, these kind of wildly complicated yield and auto callable and products of wedding cakes and snowballs and it's you know, a wedding cake yeah exactly what is it it's a structured product that yeah has, what is it that has like layers of triggers huh it's essentially it has different levels of leverage of payout depending on where the underlying goes oh it's like uh kind of reminds me of like a clo or something but yeah, leverage, yeah. I, I mean the point is <laughs> the point it was always i love the name it's kind of just no wedding cake's a great name yeah. that's why i asked you to describe but it then you know there's all variable all sorts of kinds of auto callables, the Phoenix auto callable that would like would get bigger as time went on. But my point is Does that anything rise from the ashes when it all blows up. Cause I want that product. Yeah, no, no, those are, <laughs> unfortunately those are, it just becomes ashes. Yeah, th those, th <laughs> when those puts knock in, it hurts. Yeah. But my point is only that in every investing culture, there's kind of some element of this, right? It's turning out that the United States version of this is these short dated options. Now the question is, it doesn't matter, okay? Does it matter to the underlying? Does it matter to the volatility service itself? Does it change what we do as an options manager? I'll answer the last question first, and that's no, because these very, very short dated options don't really have any impact on the biases on the option surface that we can actually act on, okay? So they, they're not really impacting the price of options at the options level outside of one or two days, okay? When you trade a one or two day option, you're not trading volatility, okay? We're picking an absolute price for some gap risk. That's really what it is. And very sophisticated people, AKA electronic market makers, who are the only people that benefit from this activity in the long run, are very good at building a big portfolio of those that on a net basis don't have any risk, okay? Either because they can trade lots of one day options, it's an excellent business. It's an excellent business for them. It's an excellent business for the internalizers. It's an excellent business for the exchanges. I don't think there's any mastermind. I think that no, I just most mean, like, of the- who's the biggest market? I mean, is this like Citadel that's floating a lot of this yeah, stuff? Yeah, Citadel, Susquehanna, God, uh, Virtu. I mean, business. these are the guys that stand to benefit the most from very short-dated option trading, for sure. Because they're the people that, you know, if you wanted to trade a lot of short-dated options, the way to do it is you trade lots of them, yeah. right? across many underlyings and many strikes so that you can create a portfolio that doesn't have any risk. Yeah, you're running the slot machine. Exactly. And somebody hits a big payout and good for them and that just gets people more addicted. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd take the analogy that far, but I, I understand the vein that you're going yeah, in. Yeah, you know. But does it have an impact on option prices, right? Or anything that a manager really would do for you to put in your portfolio? No. It just doesn't, right? It changes the price of one or two day gap risk, which is not something that any investor that we're speaking with is really going to care about. Does it impact the underlying 
So does it impact the S&P? Does it impact single stocks? With respect to the S&P, we don't really think so. We've yet to see the case where there's a big expiry and we're like, oh, well, dealer positioning and then be able to predict what happens. Like, we, we don't think that's a thing. There are people out there that do. Now, it may be different in single stocks. You get a big enough option position in a, like a mid-cap name, that can change things. Yeah, like these gamma squeezes, these are real things, right? In single stocks, yeah. I mean, you can see, like you can see a pin happen in single stocks where you get very close to a lot of open interest and it just, you know, pins right on on the strike because it has to, because some guy's rehedging his position as he approaches expiry. That's a real thing. I've seen that happen in single stocks many, many times. Can it happen at the level of the entire S&P? Ugh, we struggle to see that. Yeah. That's a long way of me saying that the zero day thing is getting a lot of attention because as much as maybe, I mean, I've seen numbers that like 60 to 70% of the option flow over some periods are these very, very short dated options. But does it change what we do? Is there a way to make money off of it as an investor? I think other than being a partner at an electronic market maker, the answer is no. Yeah, I guess I wonder if the exchanges grow for longer, but they're priced like they're going to, but who knows? Yeah, generating fees at the contract level, particularly when the contract sizes are small and you have to trade a lot of contracts, that's good business. Yeah. All right. So you have the idea of there's inefficiencies in the vol surface. How long did it take you to like, I mean, this is a complicated business to start for yourself. What's the first conversation? Like how long does it start from, I have an idea Zed to like starting to build the tech to launching a product? Yeah. So the birth of Convexitas is interesting in that I was in a bank seat in a structured solutions business. So I was talking to family offices and some hedge funds, and we had a retail business and an investable index business that was marketed to institutions. So it kind of all these different distribution channels for the things that we could make. But the things that we could make could never have discretion because you're a, we're a bank. We're not an investment manager right? Just not, and you're not allowed to be an investment manager. So everything we had to make was rules-based. So I became very familiar with kind of the limits of that sitting in a bank seat. We also couldn't launch a fund. We couldn't manage a fund, right? So we had to deliver these products either in structured notes or we had to deliver it on swap basically in an unfunded way, which, you know, took out all kinds of possible counterparties. Not a lot of family offices that are willing to have an ISDA with a bank. There are some, but not many. So I was looking at what the, my limitations were. I had some really good ideas about what I thought doing derivatives the best possible way for an investor could be, but I had these limitations I couldn't do anything with. Meanwhile, Zed is going through a series of jobs at large asset managers, hedge funds, some more boutique places, kind of also not necessarily having those limitations, but not being able to take the discretion that he wanted in both the design and the implementation, right? So we're both kind of like, we see the end status and neither one of us can get there. And that occurred, you know, he and I have known each other for over a decade. He was one of my clients at the bank at first. That's how we met. And we would have these conversations like, well, if I could only do this, and he'd say, yeah, well, if I could only do this. And then Deutsche Bank shut its equities business down right? I'm in the bad bank, unwinding the structured products business and the, and the flow business with a team there auctioning off the stuff. And it just became clear, like, if we just had the right tools, software, we could actually do what we wanted. We could offer good discretionary, high investment merit product 
in SMAs with all the flexibility that we wanted if we just had the right tools. So we, we began a process to figure out what that might look like. And over a period, you know, we've been around now two years, you know, I've written, I spend probably half my time writing those tools and now, you know, I don't 80% done or something like that to the point where now it's just a matter of tightening things up in automation. But, you know, it took a couple of years to really go from, okay, we're going to do this to the full featured tool set that it takes to manage many accounts at many custodians with discretion at scale, because you've got to get onboarded in all these places. You've got to build all these tools. You've got to get through due diligence checks at all these places. Like, you know, it took a really long time. Yeah. Are you using AI in any like helpful way or are you worried about that as a risk at all? No, because what we do is very, has to be very precise, right? So when we run an operations process, like a reconciliation, I'm not interested if it's kind of right. I need to know if it's exactly right. And, you know, there's possibly some space for like large model applications for evaluating flows and options yeah. markets. Yeah. But the reality is, as of yet, we can largely make the decisions that we need by observing the prices, which ultimately is the best signal anyway. So not yet. I actually have spent some time messing around with ChatGPT and some of these other generative tools particularly asking it unstructured coding questions like how should I approach this problem? How should I build this data frame where one row depends on the next and I want to limit the amount of recursion? So asking it kind of very unstructured questions. And what I've learned is that those tools are very good at giving me inspiration. So like they may come back and give me an answer that actually triggers a good idea in my oh, mind. Interesting, but they're not necessarily coming up with it. But I have to tell you that I would say half of the time I ask it a coding question, the answers are just wrong. Like if I were to literally copy and paste the answer it gives me into a Python interpreter, the code would not run. Which is to say, I think these tools are very good. This round of generative AI is very good at being a tool for a competent technician in that you may look at it and be like, you know, I didn't think about structuring it. I didn't think about approaching the problem that way. Like it, it might open a door that you wouldn't have had because it's easy to kind of get tunnel vision when you're working on a problem. Yeah but it's a pretty long way from being accurate. Yeah. Well, I kind of had a discussion with it about ORAN networks, like OpenRAN, and I was just trying to get some background. And I kind of thought like the same way you did, it's almost like having a conversation with a pretty smart friend and to your point, like can get you on a path of research. So it's not going to deliver the research, but starting to ask the right questions or like, okay. Yeah. I ask you questions and sometimes I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that that parameter did that. That's kind of interesting. Like it works that way, but I've also had it tell me stuff where I'm like, oh, wow, if that actually works, that's going to be great. And then it just doesn't work at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, hmm. I was wondering if really through like calculations and modeling fall surface or whatever, whether or not you thought that some sort of compute would help you. I mean, I know you use it, right? You're like a tech focused firm. So yeah. I'm just so kind so of look, we spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out where the right relative value is, but I don't think we're really at a, level of complexity where you need a large data set model in order to make those decisions. How do you know you know? Well, I mean, our results would suggest that... I know you know. Our results would suggest that we're able to make the decisions well. I do not disagree with that. I'm more interested in how you know you know. Just I ask it because actually there was a guy, Chris Meyer, wrote a book, How You Know You Know. But I think about it when I'm researching a company. Like, when do I get the point when I know I want to buy this thing? I don't know. I mean, we'll see if I'm any good at it over time. To be determined, I suppose. 
you probably get enough reps, right? I'm very interested in the class of tools, but it's not obvious to me how we would use them just yet. Well, and the amount of reps that you get, one of the complaints in what I do is let's say that you are a long equity stock picker and you hold things for five years. Oh uh, yeah, the limited path problem, yes. Well, that and you also like, how many reps is enough to know if you're any good or if you're just lucky? I mean, Jason would sit here and say, no one's any good, it's all just luck, right? But like in options, you're doing enough that the probability that you have a statistically significant like sample size is very high. So I think that there are styles of investing that lend themselves to high reps, as you say, where you could actually bear out some results. And there are other styles that aren't, right? I mean, a very low turnover, at, like asset class level portfolio that rebalance two to four times a year. Yeah, I think it's hard to make statements about yeah, skills, right? Yeah, that's right. But when we're trading at the volume that we are, every time it's a decision to change the risk, or you know, we're going to buy this option instead of that option, or this maturity instead of that maturity. Yeah, I think you can learn some stuff from that. So essentially, with the higher frequency, we should be able to know something. Yeah. Does it annoy you when Jason asks if it's a skill when he goes into his, no, everybody's just lucky they haven't been discovered yet? Jason is impossible <laughs> to argue with because his epistemology is a framework with which he doesn't care if he doesn't agree with you. Yeah, that's So right. you can't ever argue with him. Yeah, that's Like right. he just has his view and his view incorporates the fact that you don't agree. So therefore he agrees with you. It's massively, I love him. I love these yeah. conversations I have with him, but he's very difficult to argue with. I mean, it happened in Miami. I just got to the point in a conversation. I was like, look, you two are not going to agree. So like, we just need to move on from this conversation. Oh, this was the poker discussion at yeah, the other yeah, end yeah. of the table dinner. Yeah, I wish I would have actually, I've played a lot of poker in my day. That one I wish I, I would have inserted myself into in retrospect, actually. But yeah, his macro view, I understand where he's coming from. Yeah. I, I really do, but... He also likes to be provocative. There are, in this world, in my opinion, domains of skill. Maybe less than people would like to believe, but there are domains of skill. Poker is not a game of luck, and not everything is predetermined, in my view. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, you know, it was an interesting conversation, but it, it did hit the point of its logical... He does make me stop and rethink things. He's one of the few people I know that I'm really like... Oh, I have to like re-examine my priors now. Yeah. One of the things I love about him. Well, it's one of the things I love about him too. And I think like talking to people like him has expanded my mind in a way that it otherwise, I don't know. For a while I talked to a lot of the same people, right? And you get, now I just think I don't know anything. That's my ultimate conclusion is like, I have no idea. Well, Jason would tell you that you know, he didn't grow up working at a bank. He didn't think that they were going to start an investment management firm. Like, I think he feels like an outsider to the options world. But I can tell you that sitting from talking to him, he understands more about options investing than 80% of the people that are in the options investing world, right? Maybe more because he has a level of practicality and a level of, well, I may not understand the theory. So I'm going to actually spend a lot of time making sure that the results match the story. And let's face it, a lot of people fall down on the results matching the story. And, you know, her whole point of view is I'm trying to build this thing by hiring people. And I'm, I'm not a first principle option expert. I didn't study option pricing in a university like Zed and I did. Like, you know, so 
I'm going to evaluate what I'm going to listen to what I'm told and I'm going to see if that's, that's in the results. And I think that there's a kind of wonderful simplicity to that. And it's led him to, I think some truth. Yeah. And that's rare. And I, I applaud him for it. I think he probably, I, I mean, I don't know. I got to have him back on and I'm going to, as soon as he says yes, but he was telling me the story of how he was in real estate and he took a hit in the real estate and then he went short via puts He's like, and then I lost everything. Like I called, oh wait, right, but I lost everything. Yeah, well, this is the thing with options. You need to be right at the right time. Stocks don't have an expiry. I mean, I think that would be a, a lesson that might send me down a rabbit hole too, right? And if you have a loss like that to begin, you might ask more important questions to get the answers to. I don't know. I like how he approaches it. It's interesting that you know Harry Bassman actually. I don't know if you do know. I don't know if you know Harry talks about this a lot, and he's been writing since he was at Merrill, I don't know, 20 years or something, this note. And he talks a lot about how, and he's right, it's not necessarily the thing, it's the risk management of the thing that matters, right? There are no bad bonds, like there's just bad positioning. You can actually do a lot of things if they're sized correctly, which is to say, if you manage to the right risk, you can actually be wrong a lot and it's okay, right? But at the same time, if you truly could build the 15, like what Ray Dalio talks about in his white papers, like if, if you truly could build the 15 sources of alpha, of orthogonal alpha, uncorrelated alpha yeah, yeah, portfolio, yeah. if you truly could do that, you would get a five vol thing that doesn't really make that much money either. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Right? Well, without leverage. Yeah, yeah. Right? So huh? at some point, like... So your sharp ratio is way high, but your returns are actually quite low. There's going to have to be some risk-taking in order for it to work, yeah. okay? The question is, are you managing it the right way, right? So which is really a, a fundamental precept of our business, which is we start from biases, and we're in the risk management business. And we sell portfolio-level tools that help you manage risk. And that is a lot better than saying, well, do I need to nail my equity versus bond allocation, what's the better path to riches? Like being precise and guessing what my allocation should be or having the right risk management and adding some robustness that I think has value. And we think the answer is clear. Obviously, we started a business around it. Yeah. We think the latter is the way to go. Obviously, you have to be accredited for this product. What's your minimum? Do you have minimums? or? Like well, we market through two channels. We have direct clients where the minimums are kind of 10 million plus. And that's like family offices with their own investment staff. I mean, it's small institutions. That This is like properly, you know, kind of small institution world. And then we also distribute through advisors where they're essentially aggregating the clients and allocating the strategies. I mean, oftentimes we have to get on the phone with the advisor to talk about what we do to get the, to get the client comfortable. Yeah. But that's how we get the majority of about 60% of our assets are, are in that bucket. And then, of course, we have some fund of funds type thing in the first bucket as well. But so the minimums there, you know, we go down to kind of to the million and sub-million dollar level depending on what the strategy is. So it's really more of a question. It's not a fund, right? Yeah. It's more of a question of does the client understand the risk? Will their custodian approve the level of options trading that we need for that product? Those are really the questions in the retail space that we have to ask. But, you know, there's clients we've said no to because we're not actually convinced that they understand what we're doing. Yeah. I wonder how many of the RAs 
like would actually be able to describe. I can't describe exactly what you guys do. And I think I'm like reasonably into this. Stuff. I'm confident that all of our RA clients fully understand what we do. And I am because the questions that we get back to them are really sophisticated. Yeah. Like they want to understand why we did some rebalance trade. So we offer, we're a little unique in that because we've built all of our own technology, like we can make whatever we want. And the framework with which we've done it is extraordinarily flexible. So we have a variety of reporting and kind of transparency that we offer to the advisors all the way down to, we have a note attached to each trade that says what we're doing. So like we can even give you a dump of the trades and you can look and see exactly what Zed or I typed in for the rationale for that trade. And you know, they'll come back and ask us why, what does this mean? Or like, what were you thinking there? Or why do you own this long dated put? What, what's this thing doing? Right? Like, and we get those questions. So they're paying attention and, and they get it. And when I put my chief compliance officer hat on that, that gives me a lot of comfort. Yeah, no, it would too. This is the type of democratization of financial products that actually the world does need, as opposed to like freaking a casino on people's phone that, uh, you know, shoots off fireworks when you make a trade. That's not democratization. This actually is. Or an ETF that actually no one in the value chain understands what the risk at any one point in time is. But that's the thing that people sell because it's easy to describe. And it's an ETF. So, you know, it clears on DTCC and it's easy. This is the difference between investment products and financial products. Yes, that's exactly right. So if you're a retail investor or an ultra high net worth investor and your advisor comes to you and they're like, well, I want to use this thing. I'm very unpopular as a client with these guys because I'm always like, okay, great. So you want to use this, whatever this ETF is. What was the list of stuff that you evaluated to determine that this was the best possible risk and expression of this, right? And there's never an answer to that question, particularly... Actually, that's not true. At some RIAs that are very focused on the investment process, they have tremendously good answers to those questions because that's what they do. They care about the investing. But unfortunately, there's also a subset of RIAs that aren't really focused on the investing. And certainly kind of the big wirehouses are, are operating on a very limited set of models because they don't really want the advisors doing investing. They want the advisors doing marketing, yeah. right? Again, I'm, I'm making generalizations here. But so in those cases you know, what's really motivating one thing that gets recommended versus another, in many cases, it's just simply ease. It's just simply ease. And the ability to sell it, right? Which I think goes along with ease. But, you know, can I tell somebody that they're buying something and have them understand it? This is part of why short option strategies are so popular. Well, it's yield. Yeah, well, is it? I mean, if you're writing puts on the S&P and you want to talk about it and compare it to a treasury note, what do we think the duration of that strategy is? Like, let's talk about that. We know what the duration of the tenure is, okay? Seven, you know, whatever it is. What's the duration of your equity portfolio plus some short puts? 40, 50, right? I, so like, you know, these words get used, but I'm not sure that like people really understand them. Like the word yield is like a big bugaboo for Zed and I, but I don't want to harp on it too much. But like, yeah. if you were to actually create comparable risk, like I'm not sure people would, would really do these, a lot of these short option strategies. But again, like I said earlier, there's appropriate sizing, there's a time and a place for it, but I don't necessarily love the way they're marketed sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. The, the short put thing doesn't make sense to me because at the exact time I don't want to be coming to the table, I have to come to the table and I have to buy stuff higher than it was. Like that's, to me, I don't like, I don't know. Well, you'd be buying at the strike. The question is how far through the strike are you? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. So like if I'm worried about a crash, 
I don't know. I guess to your point, you could size it right and maybe I'm thinking about it too much. Yeah, I, I mean, the way to do it professionally is you size it correctly and the short options are on a treadmill and you just keep doing it. And if if you, this is actually another good litmus test for are your short options too big. If you actually have the event and you're going to be afraid to roll it, it's too big. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like you have to be prepared to do it again immediately after it loses money because the reality is when you look at like the shape of drawdowns and short option uh, PL recoveries, a disproportionate amount of the PL recovery happens immediately after, after the, the event drawdown. because the market goes up and you're short extremely expensive options. And that's the time, right? Yeah. And so the way people really get creamed is they get taken out, then they don't reinitiate. Yep. So that like they miss that opportunity and now it's just now it's permanently destroyed capital. Yeah, that makes right? sense. Right? Versus if you're sized correctly, you're gonna just keep doing it and yeah, you're gonna lose money but it's not a wipeout. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And to your point, after that drawdown, that's when vol is going to explode, right? So, yeah, that's, so that's, that's, that's the time you want to be selling again. them. Yeah. That's not the time you want to get taken out, right? Huh. Yeah, that's wild. Which is why, this is Bassman's point, the risk is what matters, not necessarily the thing. Hmm. You want to talk about anything else or you want to go get dinner? What do you want to do? You want to talk about performance under pressure? We talked about that a little yeah, bit yeah, when, yeah, we yeah. Had, when we had breakfast the other day. So, I've spent a lot of time studying routine and process and how to get physical performance under pressure through a hobby of mine, which is, as I told you, I, I shoot shotguns competitively, which revolves a lot of repetition. And, you know, you got to be able to step up and do it under pressure. And it's been a pretty amazing experience with really interesting parallels to risk management and investing and starting a business and kind of just generally living in the world. I've worked with you know, some really interesting coaches that work with, you know, this guy, Henry Hopking, who I've mentioned to you. I'd actually, I think he'd be a great guest for your podcast, actually. You know, he works with not just amateur shooters like me. I mean, he's got doctors and SWAT team guys and F1 race teams. And like, you know, people with actually like real money and risk on the line, not like me and my hobby wanting to do well. It's been a very fascinating journey learning that you actually can reshape your own kind of fear in the outcomes that you get under pressure by understanding the process that your body goes through and by designing a routine that is going to work for you. The time to do such a thing would not be in the middle of the stress, I would assume. This no, is no, absolutely not. Of. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking out loud to myself, making notes. We talked about a pre-shot routine, right? Well, have you thought any more about the pre-work routine? Yeah, so look, the point of routine, so your body is extremely good at taking physical things and linking them to a mental state, okay? So as an analogy, I have a friend who, right when you're shooting a moving target, it's very dependent on visual acuity, right? And he started unintentionally at first, creating a lot of tension in his body shoulders and his arms as his visual acuity is ramping up right as he's about to complete the shot he's also increasing his body tension and over time those two things became linked okay so that what happens is so this is a bad routine example but what happens is he began associating the body tension that is not helpful with being with the visual see, yeah. acuity that he needs. Huh. So it was like these two things fighting with one another. Yeah. Right. So he's been working to get out of that. My point is that your body is an, is amazing at linking the things you physically do 
to a state of mind and a process. So in my world, it's very much about what are the, th the things that I do? Like when I'm getting ready to perform, at what point in my process is there a visualization? At what point do I have, you know, there are specific cues in a routine that when I hit that cue, I now know it's time to go so that I don't give my conscious mind the opportunity to kind of fill my head with unproductive conscious thoughts. So I th was thinking about your question, is there a routine for business? And I don't have a fully formed answer yet, but the answer is, I think it's absolutely yes, right? And I jokingly kept thinking to myself, do you know this like super popular internet speech about making your bed every day? Yes. What's, what's yes. the uh, general, ex-general, yeah. whoever? Actually, sometimes I look at my bed when it's not made, and I hear that speech, and I'm like, you got to make it. Otherwise, you'd be nothing. This is what he's talking about. Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> yeah. This is what he's talking about. It's a physical thing that is linked to a mental state. Right? And he says it right in the video. He's like, if nothing else happens today, you made your bed. Yeah. And people kind of laugh at that, and they're like, oh, that's silly. It's not silly. The problem with a business routine is that it's so general, yeah. right, that it's not a sport. We're not out to perform a single physical thing. You've got to find the things that structure your day so that you can feel accomplishment and stay in the right focused frame of mind. So for me, I can tell you that that's, you know, I'm up at a certain time. I have a very specific reading routine that I follow that essentially has a time limit. And then I block time, like we're going to do marketing for this few hours, and then we're going to write code for these few hours, and then we're going to write. That's actually more planning than routine, which is kind of an interesting topic in and of itself, that planning is this like conscious activity that often gets confused with routine, but, but really routine should be the execution of the thing. Right? Yeah. That you would ideally would be as unconscious as possible. But as I think about your question, you've got to have the blocks of time and some physical thing that you do, I don't know, maybe it's working out for you. Maybe it's going out and taking the dog for you. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. But you've got to have the thing that tells your body, okay, it's now time to do this. But if you're unaware that you can essentially link these physical actions to a state of mind, then you don't even have the opportunity to do that or the awareness of what's going on. I'll tell you that I, I had a, have, had, am having a bit of a journey into mindfulness meditation that I've oh, yeah. that I've done with Headspace yeah. to kind of support all this. And I love this analogy that, I think I'm going to screw this poor guy's name up, Andy Pettikambi, I think is the way you pronounce his I name. I don't know. That started Headspace. He's an ex-monk. He's a really interesting guy, actually. Really? He was started by a monk? Well, he was a British guy, and then he had some bad stuff happen to him early in his life, and then he went and was in a monastery for 10-plus wow. years. His background is crazy. It's like Bond villain stuff, honestly. Like he was in a monastery and then he like went back to secular life by joining a circus. Huh. He was like a real physical guy. So there was like an annex program that he like went and was in a circus so he could like make money to get back into secular life. And then he moved back to London and then starts this, starts Headspace. It's, wow. it's a fascinating story. Not your traditional this, career path. Yeah, real, <laughs> non-intentional. I mean, I like went to business school. I feel like a wimp compared to this guy. But he talks in the in the audio, in the instructional part of the meditation tips about if you imagined your mind is like a busy highway and the cars on the road are your thoughts, the goal has to be you have to be able to sit on the side of the road and observe the cars, observe your thoughts, without going out and playing in traffic. Yeah. That's the goal. So people ask him, I heard him in an interview once say, and they would say, well, what is enlightenment? 
And his answer was this state. The ability to understand what you're thinking and not necessarily interact with it when it's not productive. So that requires a level of awareness of your own thinking and your own cognitive process that I lived, I don't know, 38 years of my life completely unaware of until I started working with this mental coach. He was like, look, I want you to try this. I, of course, resisted. And then I had this you know, nothing short of an aha moment on the train one morning. I started, so it was my second time meditating, crazy, but. On the train. I used to meditate on the train because I lived in Southern Connecticut and I was going to the yeah. bank every day. So it doesn't seem like the easiest place. No, though. you put the headphones in, it's fine. It's close, fine. close yeah. your eyes. Yeah. First day I did it, three minutes, whatever. You know, I'm like, all right, this isn't working. <laughs> Why? Right. I gave it a shot. I'm done. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, here we go. Then the next day, you know, day two. I do the, you know, it was five minutes this time and open my eyes after the five minutes. And I had this, nothing short of this, like this experience where I saw like 38 years of my life flash before my eyes and realized how little I understood about how to rest and take care of my own mind, right? That I had gone my entire life from just from one activity to the next, like, with no rest and without really any reflection, right? Yeah. Like I was in two startups and I went to business school. I went from business school to the bank and then through a chain of things at the bank. And then you know, somewhere in there, I got married and had some kids. And like, it was just one thing without actually ever really having the kind of mental rest that I needed for performance, both at work and in my shooting. And it was like someone dumped a bucket of water on me. It was like shocking sitting there in the train seat that morning. Yeah. And I call up Henry and I'm like, I'm not sure what happened. But I described this to him and he's like, oh yeah, good, good. This is, this is what happens. He's like, this is why I told yeah. you to do he's it. He's like, yeah, he's like, usually it takes more than two, but great, you've taken the first step to a broader world. And I bring it up because I think for business and kind of secular life, people look at the mindfulness thing and they're like, eh, I don't really understand what that is, right? But man, it had an impact for me. I mean, it's made me, I think, a better father, like it was, I was better at the bank. I was just more self-aware. And then with respect to like routine, so now let's talk about, there's this concept in meditation called integration where you take things, a meditation technique, and you use it outside of meditation, okay? So in a pressure situation, or if you're working distracted, if your awareness is high enough, you actually, instead of going out in the road and interacting with the distraction, right? Going out and playing in traffic, you see it for what it is. Yeah. It's a distraction. You go, okay, I'm not going to interact with that. Yeah. And move on. Right. And that's a really powerful tool, in my opinion. Yeah. And link between routine planning and meditation. So I get some crap from my shooting friends who are very good and they're like, yeah, I don't understand any of what you're talking about, Devin. But it worked for me and made an impact. Yeah. Well, they may understand it in a few years. Or they get to the same place in a different way. Right. For me, this is what it took, right? With my super active mind. Like, yeah. it, this is what it took to slow down. But I think that routine and this just are linked at very deep levels. I got to try that. My dad's on calm. He's always sending me that. Okay. So calm is good. But the thing about calm is that there are many types of meditation. Oh. Right. So I have a friend who's a very serious martial artist. And he's been meditating his whole life under a different style. And in his meditation, the object is 
to like turn all thoughts off. Okay. okay. Like just sit there and be still without thinking versus in the mindfulness meditation you find in headspace, there's a point of focus like your breath or a visualize a candle or okay. like a visualization. And then like you're acknowledging the thought that comes in. And yeah. And you're yeah. focused on that. And when your focus on that becomes interrupted, you go back to the point of focus. Hmm. Right. I think I kind of like that. That's fundamentally different than my buddy, Phil, who's just dumping his mind out and trying to have nothing. Yeah. Right. When you're at work or competing, the nothing thing doesn't work. <laughs> like yeah. you, you're, you're actively engaged in something, right? So there's actually, and I, I'm not enough of an expert in the many kinds of meditation to do an example beyond this, but you actually have to really pick a style of meditation that's going to give you the awareness that benefits what you need. Yeah. Well, some may be different or better for you in different life cycles, right? Like when you're at work, maybe the headspace works and after or whatever. If your goal is routine and performance, I feel pretty good that this headspace style mindfulness meditation is the right thing. But if you're just generally anxious and you're trying to get rid of it, it might be a different answer. But my thing about calm is that you open up calm and there's a ton of stuff in there, right? And if you don't know what you're looking for, you might be tempted to assume it's all the same, hmm. but it's not, right? So you got to get the right thing. And that requires talking to people that understand meditation. You know, these techniques have been around for thousands and thousands of years like there's got to be something there right yeah no doubt and i mean the importance of sleep though i do think sometimes the sleep thing gets a little overblown sometimes i'll like look up at this like the make my bed thought when i'm like if i don't make my bed i'll be a failure sometimes i'm like i'm not sleeping i'm failing at sleeping i'm dead. like my head starts racing about the fact that i'm not sleeping and i'm like just like i'm so with you it. man the sleep thing so i wear this i wear this whoop strap and it has all these cool sleep statistics it gives me every day. Yeah. Tells me how much and in what state and whatever. And over time, like, I've developed a pretty good baseline for what I think is fully rested, which I care about for competing. Yeah. Like, obviously, I want to go into a competition fully rested. But I got to tell you, last Wednesday, I was out late Tuesday with some friends I hadn't seen in a while at a competition. We're all here in Florida. I was out late. I had less than six hours of sleep Tuesday night into Wednesday. You know, ordinarily I'd be at eight, almost less than an hour of, you know, what it would call restorative sleep. Yeah. Went out the next day, had had the second best day I had of the, of the entire tournament. <laughs> and that's happened multiple times, right? But I've also had that same pattern and had truly terrible days. Yeah. So I think that sleep matters, but it's secondary to, with respect to performance, it's secondary to whatever the key drivers for whatever you're trying to do are. I'm at the age where I can't consistently not sleep well. That I know. But I, I could probably get away with a night or two of... I've also noticed that sleep consistency... Shout out to eight sleep. My sleep consistency matters much more than total time. So go, just going to bed every night by 10, even if I don't sleep seven hours. But going to bed consistently ends up having a bigger impact. Like if my, if my bedtime is fluctuating between... 9.30 and 1 in the morning, a lot in a week. That's a tougher week than if I'm going to bed at the same time, even for the same total amount. Yeah. This is all part of the work routine, I think. Yeah, actually, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. Well, I appreciate you stopping by, man. It's been great. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. All right. Have a good one. Have a good one.